Life can get dark. So dark at times that we can lose our way or even lose hope. And in these moments, we begin to question everything. We can even question God. We ask questions like this. If God is real, why would he let me experience this horrible thing? Why does he not seem to hear my prayer? Why does he not seem to answer? The darkness can feel like it wraps itself all around us. And when that happens, it can feel completely overwhelming. A number of years ago, when I was living in Houston, I was friends with a family that would very kindly let me house sit their very nice house for them. And one of the things in my memory of my time there is that they had the best blackout curtains that I had ever seen in my entire life. Now, most of you know what blackout curtains are. They're curtains that keep out most of the light, but these blackout curtains literally kept out all light. And so you could wake up thinking in their guest room, thinking that it was the middle of the night, only to discover that the sun had been up for several hours. And I think at times, that's what life can feel like. It's like somebody's thrown a blackout curtain over life. And in that darkness, we can find ourselves just stumbling and fumbling our way forward. We can describe these moments, especially in church context or Christian context, with all sorts of flowery language. We can talk about a dark moment or, or a difficult season or I'm just walking through a valley right now. But let's not try to dress it up as we're going to talk about this today. Our world has some terms for describing these moments. Two of the ones that come to mind are burnout and depression. We're about to look at a psalm where we can pretty safely say that the author of the psalm is struggling with depression. Just as we have different genres of music or different types of food, there are different types of psalms. This particular psalm that we're going to look at could be classified as a psalm of lament. And I want to be quick to point out that it's not the only psalm that is a lament. There's actually a number that fit into that category. One of the famous ones is Psalm 22. It says this in verse 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry to you day after day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You may have heard those words before. They're very famous. Another famous psalm of lament is the twin psalms of Psalm 42 and 43. I call them twin psalms because both of them repeat a phrase. And that phrase is, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Why are you cast down? Why are you struggling? Why are you depressed? Why are you at turmoil, uneasy? However, the psalm that we're going to look at, which is Psalm 88, stands as somewhat unique amongst the Psalms of Lament. And the reason for that is because it doesn't turn for the better at any point during the Psalm. Most of the Psalms of Lament talk about the struggle, but then turn towards God. They have some hope in God. But this Psalm, Psalm 88, that we're going to look at, just doesn't. And you'll see that as we read through it. In fact, I was reading through the ESV Study Bible, and it says this, Most laments let in a ray of sunshine usually closing on a confident note. 
Psalm 88 is distinct from all the rest in that there is no explicit statement of confidence. Let's look at the psalm together. And so I invite you to open with me to Psalm chapter 88. Psalm 88. I'm going to read the whole psalm for us. It'll take just a few moments. It's 18 verses long, and you can read along with me. It says this, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes to you, be, comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I want to delve into some of the particulars that we find here in this text, some of the detail. But before we do that, there is a burning question that I want to ask with you. And that is the question of why. Why would God not just allow, but actually even want this psalm in his word? A Christian believes that God is sovereign. That means he is in control over all things, including the Bible. He's in control of what goes into that book. I believe that. A Christian also believes that the words of the Bible are inspired by God, that everyone is there inspired by him to exist and to be meaningful and purposeful for us. But I've got to believe that Psalm 88 just didn't slip through some sort of edit where God was like, oh, oops, uh, well, we'll just leave that one. No, it's there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. And yet, as we read it, we can't help but read it and feel the helplessness and the darkness of it. It actually seems like, and we'll get into this, that the author is accusing God of not being good, caring, or present. Now, this is where I want to confess something to you, and that is that in a way, I've actually been excited to preach this sermon out of this psalm. 
Now you may be thinking, well, why is that? It's pretty negative. Well, I think it's because of the same reason that God has perfectly placed this sum. The answer to the question I asked previously and the one I just asked is that I'm excited about it. And God wants this word in here is because it is real. I love that God doesn't shy away from hard things and tough questions. And that reminds us that God doesn't want us to pretend that life is easy. He knows everything. He knows when we are struggling and he knows when we're trying to put on a brave face. This psalm, in a way, gives us permission to struggle and to voice our struggle. Many, many people inside of Christianity, inside of the church, treat their faith at times like some sort of masquerade party. They put on these fronts, these masks, and pretend like they act like everything's okay. They walk into a church context or they sit down with a friend from their Christian community and they say, how are you? Oh yeah, I'm good. And they lie. We do this to each other and we, and we try even to do this with God. And this psalm, what it does is it encourages us to pull down the masks that we try to hide behind and to be real. As we look into the detail that we find here, we see in verse 1 that it starts with these words, O Lord, God of my salvation. And that sounds pretty positive. If it was just to end there after that first half of a verse, it would sound like a lot of other psalms, pretty positive. But actually, it's pretty much all downhill from here. The first few verses really voice a complaint. It's a cry out to God. And it's saying, God, please hear me. God, please help me. And the request we're starting to understand is not a first request. This is actually an ongoing thing. It says in the second part of verse one, I cry out to you day and I cry out day and night before you. This is an ongoing issue. This is an ongoing struggle. As we go into verse three, what we find is that we in a way are plunging off the edge of the cliff. And, and from this moment, we, we, go down into the depths of the pain that the author is feeling. And this is where we find them really in this dark, dark moment, associating themselves as near to death. I mean, if you just look at the imagery in verses three to six, it sounds like something, and, and I've been reflecting on this as I've read this over and over this week, it sounds like something out of a horror movie. Verse three says, talks about Sheol. Sheol is an Old Testament word describing the place of the dead. It can sometimes be translated as the grave or hell. Verse 4 and 6 talks about a pit, or, and that means a hole or a dungeon. It talks in verse 5 about being among the dead, and, and it talks about graves, which again is like a burial place or a tomb. And as you move on into verse 11, you find all of these themes of, of death popping up again. It talks about Abaddon and, and about the grave. Abaddon is sometimes translated as Hades or the place of destruction. So what's the point of all this death imagery? What's being described here? Well, what's going on and what's causing this anguish is, is this writer feeling this overwhelming feeling like they're on the brink of death. I mean, verse 7 in some ways kind of summates that as they use this imagery of almost drowning, like they can't catch a breath. 
Look at verse 7. It says, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves. As in, I'm sinking here, God. And we actually see that coming out again in verse 17. You surround me like a flood all day long. Um, they, sorry, the, the assaults sent, surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. We don't know the cause of the pain that this author, this writer is experiencing, but we can see that the author thinks they know the cause of the pain. They're accusing someone of being the cause of that, and that person, that being, is God. I mean, look at the language that's used in verse 7 again. It says, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Basically saying, God, you're killing me here. And this accusatory tone continues on as we go on to the very next verse. Verse 8 says, verse 8 says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And what's being expressed specifically here in verse 8 is the feeling of, of the pain of rejection. It's saying my companions, in fact, my very close friends, if you look at verse 18, have rejected me. And God, that's because you have rejected me. As you move on into verse 9, the author reminds us that they're trying to get a hold of God, trying to get God to step in and to act. And the feeling is that God's not answering, that he's not responding. In a way, they feel like they're being ghosted by God. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. It's a relatively new one in our digital age where we have phones, but this, this mobile phones, it's ghosting. Uh, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says this. Ghosting, also known as uh, simmering or icing, is a colloquial term which describes the practice of ending all communication and contact with another person without any apparent warning or justification and subsequently ignoring any attempts to reach out or communication made by said person. So that's the definition. But as we read this psalm, it really feels like the psalmist believes and feels like God is ghosting them. As you go on and, and look with me in verse 13 and 14, you'll see that the gloves are really coming off at this point. It says in verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Essentially what we're hearing here is, God, where are you? I need you really bad right now. Where are you? You're not here when I need you the most. I painfully remember someone I know really quite well, sharing with me their journey away from faith and away from God and church community. They described how in the moments they needed God most, that all they heard in that moment was crickets. And from what they could see and what they could feel, God was absent and silent. These things are very similar in experience to a man in the Bible called Job. Some of you are familiar with Job. He's this man who goes through a really difficult time. He loses everything, including all of his children in just a single day. He's in this moment of darkness and suffering. And in Job 13, verse 24, he records this. It's this cry out to God that sounds very similar to Psalm 88. He says, why do you hide your face 
So speaking to God and count me as your enemy. As we move on into the end of the psalm, as we've already noted, the mood doesn't brighten at all. In fact, it ends on a very glum note. It says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. If you look in your Bible, or at least in some translations, it actually will have two ways of translating that last sentence. And so we can also read this, darkness has become my only companion. And again, maybe we paraphrase this. Basically what's been said is, you're not here, God. All I have for company is this horrible darkness. You can't get much more raw or real than what we're seeing here. As we read this psalm, it's good for us to know that God is big enough to handle the complaints and the darkness of the writer of Psalm 88. We can know that because God has placed this in his word. And it's good for us to also know that if that is true, that God is big enough to handle the complaints and darkness that you and I go through. There is actually something that's really beautiful and freeing about knowing that we can be honest with God and that he's able to absorb our pain and our darkness into his perfection and his light. In fact, if you go on to Psalm 139, which we'll look at next week, it says there that for God, the darkness is as light. He can see in the darkness. He cuts through the darkness. When we feel lost in depression and darkness and confusion, God sees right through all of it. One of the schemes of our enemy as Christians is to make us feel isolated and alone when we're in moments of darkness. He likes to make us feel terrible about the fact that we're feeling terrible. There are people who experience thoughts of depression and darkness and then start getting depressed that they're feeling those feelings. And that shouldn't surprise us. He's called Satan or the devil, and and that is translated sometimes as the accuser. His job is to point the finger. But if you are in the dark, even right now, I want you to hear this. You are not alone. You're actually in some very good company. Job, the man I talked about, was this man who really did love God and really did seek to honor God with his life. He was generous. He was kind. He was a great guy. Yes, he had a moment of darkness, but his life was still lived for the glory of God. If you fast forward a few thousand years, there was this man named Martin Luther, who many of us know as being famous for doing this incredible work of helping revitalize the church. We call it the Reformation, an incredible man used in an incredible way by God. But one thing many people don't know is that he too went through darkness and depression. If you fast forward another couple of hundred years, there's one of my personal heroes, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who was this incredible preacher and pastor and evangelist. He too, even through all his victory, struggled with depression. There have been many, many people who have loved God, who have walked through a path of darkness. And so if that is you, please know today that you are not alone. Don't buy into that lie. In his epic allegory 
The Pilgrim's Progress, author John Bunyan vividly pictures some of what we're discussing here, depression, darkness, and, and, and what's described for us in Psalm 88. And he does that by talking in his story about two followers of God who veer just slightly off the path of life that God has them on. And as they veer off where God has them, they head off into a storm. And after the storm, they're captured by a giant and the giant is called despair. Despair beats them and he drags them off to his castle called Doubting Castle. It's a vivid picture. Giant despair, doubting castle, and there we find these guys rotting, beaten and rotting for quite a long time, until finally one evening when they reach out to God in prayer, they remember all of a sudden that God has given them a key that they have forgotten about. The key has a name. It's called Promise. And so with shaking hands, they pull it out and, and they go and they find that this, this promise, this key unlocks every door in Doubting Castle and it helps them to escape from giant despair. This paints such a good picture. It's this point that's well made. And the point is this that Bunyan's making. The key to escape from despair and doubt is found in God's promises. And so what are God's promises? Well, God promises us in his word right from the beginning that he loves us, that we, his creation, mankind, he loves us and that he wants to rescue us and that he wants to be made right with us. He, one of his promises is that he knows the plans that he has for us, plans for a hope and a future. And as you journey on through the Bible, looking at all these promises, they culminate and, and they culminate in Jesus, God's son. He is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made. In fact, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 20, it tells us for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the key that unlocks the dungeons of despair, doubt, and depression. Now, as I say that, I realize it can sound a little bit maybe overly simple to say that the key to darkness and depression is Jesus Christ. And that's especially true if maybe you're experiencing a low moment just even now. And so, Maybe it would be helpful for us to flesh out what we mean when we say that Christ is the key to free us from darkness and depression. And we can do that by actually going back to Psalm 88. If we were to summate Psalm 88, we could say, well, that the author feels like there are two main problems. One is that they are abandoned by God. And secondly, that they are facing death. And what I want to remind you of is the truth that Jesus was abandoned by God and did face death and didn't just face death. He died so that you and I don't have to. We know that Jesus was abandoned by God. I mean, think about the profound moment and the profound words of Jesus right before he died. 
What did he cry out on the cross? In, in Matthew 27, it tells us that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus got the great silence of God so that we could have, we could know that God hears and answers. Those are the words of Pastor Tim Keller. And I totally agree with what he's saying here. We may feel like God doesn't hear us and we can feel like God doesn't answer us, but that's not the truth. We can look to the cross and know that we know that that's not the truth. We can bring our pain and our darkness to him, to the cross, which was, by the way, the darkest moment in history. Because that was the moment when God looked away from his much-loved son so that he could look upon us. We deserve our darkness. And yet we are offered Christ's light. And so my conclusion is probably not a very surprising one. It's to ask you if you know Jesus, to ask you if you know Jesus, who is the key, the promise. He is the one who can unlock the dungeons of darkness and despair in which we find ourselves. Darkness is, yes, an inevitable reality in this life, in this broken world, until Jesus comes and restores it. But we don't have to weather that darkness alone. We can look to the cross and we can find hope. We can find the God who went through ultimate darkness for us.